invite you to take your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 11. Going to return to our series in the book of Romans. And while we're going to be looking at the teaching of the whole chapter, we're actually focusing on verses 25 to 32, which we'll be looking at in a moment. There are certain life-changing moments that happen not only in an individual's life, but sometimes they happen in a whole culture. Uh, They are are paradigm-shifting events um, that impact virtually everybody. Uh, Certainly, uh, if you are old enough to remember when JFK died, most of us, if you asked, where were you when you heard about the assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy, most of us can tell you exactly where we were. Uh, I think the same is true of 9-11, for sure. I would guess the same is true when uh, Pearl Harbor happened and the uh, stock market crash. I think there are certain defining moments that take place within a culture. The cross of Jesus Christ and the aftermath of that was absolutely that moment for the entire Jewish culture. It was a shattering reality And it was a particularly paradigm-shifting moment for those who, in fact, did embrace Jesus Christ as the Messiah. It left them with countless questions. And as Paul is presenting the most thorough presentation of the cross and the implications of the cross of Jesus Christ in the book of Romans, people would have been listening trying to process questions that they, they just couldn't avoid as he is presenting the ramifications of Jesus Christ being Savior and Lord. In Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul is addressing the question, the big question, where does Israel fit in God's plan? He's been doing that. We, we look back um, a few weeks ago in, in Romans chapter 9, and he talked about explaining Israel's fall from grace, that they as a nation had been the chosen people of God, and now it seems like most of them have not embraced Jesus as their Savior, and how does all this work and fit together? And, and he talks about the fact that you have to understand, remember, that mercy comes by the sovereign choice of God. A difficult, challenging chapter, but one in which he anticipates some of these objections. Is God fair if he elects some to believe and not others? Why does God blame us for not believing if this is so? Shouldn't God be understandable to us? Doesn't this take away any incentive to pray for a witness to people? All those are there, and in the sermon that we preached on that back in May 25th, um, those questions we raised. When he got to Romans chapter 10, he addresses uh, the fault of Israel, that people are responsible for their own rejection of God's mercy. And on John, June 2nd, Mike, Pastor Mike talked about uh, this question and talked about how they had sought acceptance with God in the wrong way, that they had failed to seek acceptance with God through the Christ way, that the mission that is given to the church now is to take the gospel, the message of Christ, to Gentiles and Jews, to all peoples and all people groups. He then proceeds in Romans chapter 11 to talk about Israel's future. And he says, I want you to see God's mercy plan for human history. It's a vast panoramic view that he's presenting to us here. 
And in this passage, he's presenting how Israel fits into God's overall plan. But I would suggest, and I, I realize even as you hear that, you might be out there thinking, oh, man, what? Dogs, I came to church this morning. It's Father's Day. They come and you're going to talk about Israel. I'm not even Jewish. And how does this relate to me? Well, as I mentioned in Romans 9, these passages are far more about God than, than about Israel. And they're about God's plan. And I'm going to try at the end of my message this morning to come all the way back uh, with what I think is a beautiful application of this whole passage um, to fathers on Father's Day. But as we come here, we're looking at God's mercy plan for human history. This panoramic view of God's work in human life. That's what the whole chapter is about, but it is actually more succinctly stated in verses 25 to 32. So I'd like to take that as our text this morning. I do not, verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were, were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you this morning as the God who is always at work among us. That in every corner of this globe, every piece of ground, every particle of air that surrounds us and the galaxies around, you are at work. Your word, your purposes are being accomplished. And God, that's true right now in our little puddle of life that each of us live in. So, Lord, we ask this morning that you would teach us a little bit about what it means that you have a plan of mercy that's being lived out through the ages. We might have hope. We might be deepened in our desire and willingness to trust in you because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. A good question to ask people who are attempting to diss the Bible particularly those which are often people who are dissing the Bible, who have a, a, some familiarity with it or a cursory view of it, they have a sense of what they think it's about, is to simply say, what do you think the Bible's about? And almost without exception, I've done this a number of times through the years, almost without exception, people will say something like, well, it's a, it's a book to teach you how to live your life. Um, it's a good moral code. It has things like the Ten Commandments, maybe the Sermon on the Mount. It's a holy book. It's showing you how to live a, a, a life, how to know God and, and do life with God. And, and I think the appropriate response is to say, well, actually, the Bible is a story. 
It's a narrative. The whole thing is a story that, that God is writing through history, and it's just telling us about that story. We don't really know what God is doing outside of his involvement with human beings. You know, he's, we, we know from the Bible what he's doing with Homo sapiens, but what he's doing out in the other parts of the cosmos, we don't know. We don't know what he's superintending there, but the Bible tells us his plan among this little, little, this little particle of the universe called earth and God's plan for humankind. And really this plan has four parts. It has what is called creation. God created everything. He brought it out of nothing. Ex nihilo, just by his spoken word, the earth is part of that. He brought human beings into existence. Secondly, the second part of the story is the fall. The humankind fell into sin, rebelled against God. The third part, the big part of the story, according to the Bible that we know, is redemption, the story of a rescue mission of God coming after those who have rebelled against him. And then the fourth part of the story is consummation, the future. What's going to happen in, in, in the future gives us some visuals of that. But the third part is what he spends most of the Bible on, this mercy plan, this rescue mission of God. And it's what he's enacting. And if you study the Bible, you, start, you see he starts at creation, goes into the fall, and then immediately goes into this rescue plan that goes through the entire Bible. And if you want to really understand the Bible, you need to see it's a narrative. It's, it's a story of chronological God working through history, his mercy plan of people. In Romans chapter 11, what Paul is doing is summarizing the mercy plan with a big, a big picture, a big visual. And he's going to present five stages historically, chronologically of the story. In Romans chapter 11, 30 to 32, he, he summarizes it. That's why we're taking some of those verses in our text. But Romans 11 is all talking about it. And so I'd like to look at the five steps that he gives, and then I'd like to have some takeaways that I'd like to suggest to you at the end. We can apply. In verse 30, he, he says, you, he's applying this to... A, a vast group of people, and the you he's talking about there are the Gentiles. The ethnos is what the word Gentile actually is translating from. It's the people groups, the nations of the world. Anybody that's not a Jew is in the ethnos. Most of you are in the ethnos. We are the Gentiles. And he's going to say they or there in, in that, and he's talking there about the Jews. Those are the two big groups he's talking about. And the first thing we learn is that nations overall historically rejected God as Lord of their lives. That's the first 11 chapters story of the Bible. Genesis 1 through 11, he created the world. Genesis 3, the first humankind fell into sin. And then the, the living out of that, there were certain people that did embrace God as Lord of their lives. But overall, the one nation, one civilization of the world who had one language... We don't know how long it was, how many years, how many centuries, millennia it was that they were in existence. When they came down, ultimately, the summary was in, Rome, in Genesis chapter 11, they gathered together and they basically said, we're going to be like God. You know, we're going we're gonna to do this God thing ourselves. We're going to make, it says they said, we are going to make our name great. And we're going to build this this. This tower, it was ziggurat, it was a worship place. We're going to build this giant tower to the skies. We're going to be God. We're going to be our own God. And God then interposed and basically 
changed their languages. So now they couldn't talk. And, and, and literally, there became division among the civilization of earth. And there was a civilization over here and a civilization over here based on language initially. And then they became cultures. But during this time, God had been working with individuals among the great populace of the world. After the Tower of Babel, which is Genesis 11, Genesis 12, God interjected an entirely new methodology. He began to work with a family that ultimately became a people. He took this guy named Abram, or Abraham, and he said, you're living in a secular city. He was now living in a secular city called Ur in the modern-day Iraq, he said, I want you to go to this land, which as far as he knew was just desert. He found out there was beauty there. Um, he said, I want you to go to this place, and I'm going to build a nation out of you. And they're gonna, you're going to have as many descendants as the stars of the sky. And so Abraham obeyed and went there, and he had a son named Isaac. And then Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob's name by God was changed to Israel. And therefore, all of the, the descendants of those Patriarchs were called Israelites after that. And God began to use that family as the primary means of him focusing his mercy to a particular people. And this is what Genesis 12 to the rest of the Old Testament did. God focused on extending his mercy to them. In that process, God gave to Israel what he didn't give to anyone else. And what he did was extend his mercy to Israel and to others. There were others here or there. People would also embrace the God of the Israelites, Jehovah God. They would embrace him, and they would become a part of, of the people of God, the chosen people. But for the most part, he was focusing on building this people. And he did for them what he didn't do for anybody else. And the whole Testament is the story of this. Some of the passages that make this clear, Psalm 147, it says this about Israel. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. The other nations don't know his laws. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 9 about Israel. The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption of sonship, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amos, uh, the prophet, spoke for God when, he, when God said, You only, the Israelites, have I known of all the families of the earth. I have a special relationship with you. The nations of the world overall continued, and in an overall sense, there were individual exceptions in rebellion against God. And there was a long history, centuries, of letting the nations go their own way while God focused his redemptive work on Israel. Then we come to verse 30 in Romans chapter 11, and here's what it says. Just as you were, all you nations, you Gentiles, one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. He says, you nations who were disobedient who were separate, now have become the recipients of mercy on the basis of Israel's disobedience. What is he talking about? Well, he's actually talking about the thing 
that was in the craw of all of the Jewish Christians of Paul's day. It was what totally bewildered them. The fact that most Jews had rejected their own Messiah. And they said, what is going on? What is God doing? Has God forgotten that we are the chosen people? And they had logical, reasonable questions. Paul, you said the gospel is for the Jew first. If it is, why are so few of the Jews buying into Christ? Why aren't they the first to accept it? Why has God seemingly left the Jews and is now devoting his grace and mercy to the pagan nations? After centuries of waiting for the Messiah, how could the privileged people of God have failed to recognize the Messiah? How can their unresponsiveness be reconciled with God's covenants to them, his promises to them? And Paul responds initially the way he starts chapter 11 with this statement. He says, God has not abandoned his people. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. He says, look, I'm exhibit A, that God has not rejected all the Jews. I'm in. I've embraced Christ and been embraced by Christ. Now, that's that's a powerful argument in a way, but I, if I read that or heard that for the first time read in the Roman church, I don't think I would have said, oh, of course, well, that answers all my questions. Thanks so much, Paul. No, I'd be saying, well, that's fine. You're an exception. But the bottom line is the chosen people have not bought into Christ. And maybe there's a you here or there, or maybe I would be that, he says, the person listening would say, but how do you explain this overall rejection? Well, Paul then responds in verses 2 through 5 of Romans 11 by giving another historic example. He said, you got to remember how God has always worked. Remember this guy by the name of Elijah, he says, Elijah was a prophet of God, was prophesying in the, in the northern kingdom of Israel, and when he was there, the nation was, was utterly pagan. And they didn't, their state religion no longer was the religion of, of, of the Bible, their state religion was no longer worshiping Jehovah, it was worshiping Baal, it was worshiping another god called Asherah. And most of the prophets that were on the state payroll, as a matter of fact, all the prophets that were on the state payroll, all the priests that were on the state payroll were prophets of Baal and Asherah. And there was a true prophet of God who was an antagonist to the king of Israel named Elijah. He felt, I'm the only one left. And, and Paul quotes him in Romans chapter 11, verses 2 through 5, and here's what he says. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, Paul says. Paul says, there's always been a remnant that God has preserved. He said it was back, and there were, there were 7,000 that were still. Nobody knew who they were. They were hiding in caves, but they still bowed the knee to, to the Lord, not to Baal or Asherah. And he says, today, there is still a remnant that God is preserving from Israel to be true believers in the Christ. And he's arguing for the fact that 
There's always that remnant in every generation. It is still true today. God still has his people who have embraced the Messiah among the people of Israel. We have people in our church with Jewish heritage that have embraced Christ as Savior. There are people in area churches and churches around the world that have embraced Christ with Jewish backgrounds. There are missions, friends of Israel, the God, uh, chosen people ministries that are focusing on helping Jewish people to embrace Jesus as Messiah. There is a remnant of people in every generation that God has preserved. And so the third thing Paul is telling us, he says, first is there was this period where the entire world had turned against God. Then God chose to extend his mercy preeminently towards a family that became a tribe, that became a nation, that is a people. That people group rejected their own Messiah. And in doing so, allowed others to come in and to embrace the Messiah. But there is still a remnant of Jews that are believing in this day. But what has happened in this day is God's tact has changed. The fourth thing we see is God is focused on extending mercy to the Gentiles, to the nations. Verse 30, you, the Gentiles who were at one time disobedient to God, who had basically no place uh, except if you came in through Israel to the mercy of God, have now received mercy. Verse 31, God's mercy is now to you. In the sovereign plan of God, he used the rejection of Jesus by the Jews to extend the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, how did that work? What does that mean? What, what is he saying? I mean, why did, the Jew, why did the Jews' rejecting of Jesus make it so the gospel, I mean, why couldn't just God do it for both? Well, here's what happened. If the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, if he had died on the cross, and all of Israel had or the majority of Israel had embraced Christ as Savior, what it would have been would have been another new reform movement within Judaism. But it would have still stayed within the synagogue worship. The priesthood would have been, yes, renovated, more, more uh, sold out to God than, than they were in the first century. But it still would have been a Jewish faith, a Jewish Messiah for Jewish people. And Paul is saying, by the sovereign purposes of God, the rejection of the majority of Israel enabled the gospel to go to the nations. How did that happen? Here's, in a practical way, here's what happened. Different people would spread out from Palestine with the gospel in the early first century after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Lots of people went. The most famous is Paul, but there were others that went with the gospel. And invariably, the methodology of all of them was the same. They would go into pagan towns and cities uh, of the Roman Empire, and they would always start in the synagogue. They would take the message of Christ in the synagogue, and the, the response was invariably similar. They would go in, and some of the Jews that were in the synagogue would say, this is it. We've been waiting our whole lives. This is the guy. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. We get it. We see it. And they embraced him as their Savior, just as some of the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea did. But in that synagogue, invariably, there would be many that did not, and there would be tension and hostility. And eventually, what happened in the, in the synagogues was 
the Jews were cast out. And these Jews would be there, and then they, the, the, and in some cases, there's almost none of them that initially believed. And Paul and the other missionaries would go to, they'd be there in the town, and then they'd just start. At first, it was almost like, well, we don't know what else to do. So they'd start preaching to the Gentiles. And lo and behold, Gentiles were pouring into the faith, embracing Christ as their Savior, seeing their sins, repenting of their sins, turning to Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives. And this new group, this new entity began to be started called the church. It was comprised of, four, of Jews that had embraced Jesus as Messiah and Gentiles from all different ethnicities who joined together in this one new mercy-receiving, grace-giving environment of God's salvation work called the church. And Paul here says, that happened because all Israel didn't believe. And he said in the plan of God, he used their rejection to expand the mercy-giving process of salvation. He says there was God's sovereign plan all along to extend the mercy plan to all peoples, which brings us back to the original question, well, what about Israel? And the last thing I would highlight before we look at our application is this, God will extend this mercy to Israel. If you look at verse 25 and 20, he says in verse 31, so they too, the, Israel, the Jews, have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. He says, one of the great enterprises of this local church, of, of the church time, is evangelism, is to go forth, to take the message. And some of that swinging back towards the Jewish people, friends of Israel, chosen people ministries. Those of you in our congregation with Jewish background have, have received that rebounding effect of the church through the ages. But he says more about the future of Israel than just the remnant. Look at verse 25 and following. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited, Israel has experienced a hardening, hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When he says that the full number of the Gentiles come in, he he definitively seems to be talking about a particular moment in history. Secondly, he says, all Israel will be saved. Now, I don't think anybody I've ever read believes that that's referring to every single Israelite that's on earth. But it is a general way of saying, I'm not just talking about a here and there person, like Paul says, I'm, a, I'm part of the remnant, and he is, and he is. He's saying that the majority, that there will be a vast turning of Israel towards the faith. That there will be a vast moment when I will remember, in verse 17, my covenant with them. When Israel is not forgotten and the remnant is restored, all it is maintained all these years, but there is still something more that's going to happen. And that's something more I believe, and I believe this is a teaching that has been 
throughout the history of the church in all different theological bents of evangelicalism that the Jews, the Jewish people will have a turning to Christ in a massive repentance and salvation movement. That God is not done with the general population of the Jews in the world. Now, I'm not as sure as some, of, some others of what this will look like. I don't know that it guarantees a national and geographic blessing for Israel, but it clearly guarantees supernatural, excuse me, spiritual and eternal blessings for the Jews. It seems to me that this alone explains the unique nature of the Jewish heritage. Judaism, Israel, Jews have a heritage like no other people in the history of the world. I, I was struck with this, I think, for the first time many years ago when my wife and I were in church planning here at the church and we were trying to reach our neighbors in our street there in Marlton. And we'd moved in for, we'd been there a couple of years and we felt prompted to we did a couple of things with our neighbors, but one of them was we decided to have a dinner party for all, we invited everybody in our, our street. And we were at a corner, so we were sort of in the middle of this long street. We divided everybody, both sides, up and down. We, and, and we had cut, come to know a couple. Uh, his name was Bernie Berman. Bernie was a violinist and a very accomplished violinist. And he was also um, Jewish. He had embraced Christ as a Savior, very outgoing um, a character, and we just felt prompted, we're going we're gonna to have a dinner party. We asked him to play, play your violin, and tell your story. And we, we made invitations up, and we took the invitations to every neighbor. We explained who it was, told him about, told him about his, his exploits as a violinist, which were interesting and, and, and impressive, and told him he was, he was Jewish, but he's going to talk about coming to faith in Christ. And uh, we had a great night. We had a good crowd. We had a great time. He did a fabulous thing. But before we took the invitations, I showed it to Bernie. And uh, he read it over, and he said, this is, this is really good. This is great. And he, he, he was a, he's an ideas guy, so he liked an idea. And he said, I love this idea. And, and, and then he says, but, he said, I, I, yeah, you got something in there I, I can't, I can't, I, I can't have, I can't, I'm really uncomfortable with it. I said, what? And he said, you call me a converted Jew. He said, I, I, I haven't converted from being Jewish. He says, I'm a Jewish Christian. And I was thinking, what? What? Jewish Christian? I mean, if I had a person from a Muslim background, I didn't say this, I'm thinking this, from a Muslim background, receive Christ as Savior, I don't introduce them as a Muslim Christian. I think it's an either-or, probably. You're embracing Christ as your Savior, or I don't have a Buddhist Christian. It seems like you've made a choice between these two faiths. So, so what do you mean? I asked him, what do you mean? And he says, I have embraced Jesus Christ for my faith but I have not embraced 
being Jewish. It's, it's more than my belief. It's my culture. And I was fascinated to think about it. And a while back, I read a book. I didn't read the whole book. I read parts of the book and I, I, because I knew I'd be speaking on this. And the book is entitled, What is a Jew? by Rabbi Morris Kurtzer. And it's a contemporary book written in the last 10 years. And basically, it's a fairly prominent book. And basically, he is describing the definition of what it means to be Jewish. And it's fascinating because he says there are four definitions that are historically true of being Jewish. One, there is a religious definition. Two, there is a spiritual definition. Three, there is a cultural definition. And four, there is an ethnic definition. Now, he says, he, he, he says now, that doesn't mean that people that, that, are, that are Jewish have all the, that same cultural, ethnic background. People have recently become Jews and become a part of synagogues. And, but he's saying there is still a cultural background that we have as Jews. There is a... There is a ethnicity that we claim as Jews. Now, I challenge you to think of any other people group on the world like that. For instance, how many of you know, have ever met a Jebusite or an Amorite or a Hittite or a Philistine or a Hivite? Now, most of you are saying, I don't even know what that word is. The reason you don't know and the reason you've never met those people is because somewhere between 1,500 and 2,500 years ago, all those people groups were amalgamated into other groups. And there are no Hivites today. There are no Philistines. There are no Amorites. They're gone. But there's a contemporary group that existed with them called the Jews that's still here. Not only does that culture exist virtually unchanged in many ways, they also have a united belief system that has virtually unchanged. Some a little more liberal, some a little more conservative, but very similar on their basic foundational beliefs. Yet, they have faced inestimable persecutions and annihilations sometimes over their faith, sometimes because of their ethnicity, sometimes just because of cultural perceptions. As this people group, they were persecuted by the Romans in the Roman Empire before the church was. They were blamed for the black death in the Middle Ages. People, many of them Christians in Christian Europe, claimed that there was a... There was a um, they were made a scapegoat because rumors went out that they had actually gone and poisoned the wells of towns. Literally, whole towns and villages of Jews were massacred because people blamed the Black Death on them. During the Crusades, the two largest of the Crusades, and there were a number of Crusades, but the two largest and most well-known on the way to the Crusades and on the way back, and of course that was Christians against Islam in the Holy Land, on the way there and on the way back, the crusaders, the Christian crusaders, burned cities of the Jews. The pogroms of Russia, the Holocaust of Nazism, were more recent attempts to rid the world 
of the Jews. All these and examples too many to recount argue for a protection and preservation of the Jewish people that only a divine hand can explain. And Paul is saying, today there's a remnant. By the nation not embracing the Messiah, the door was open for God to do what he planned to do, which was open the gospel to all the nations. Today there is still a remnant of Jews believing. But there will be a time Maybe it will be concurrent with the end of the time of the Gentiles where there will be a mass turning to Christ among the Jews. I believe that's what he's saying here. And he says, here's the panoramic view of God's plan, of history, of his mercy-providing plan through history. Okay, so what are takeaways for us? Quickly. God is always at work fulfilling his sovereign plan. That's true not only for the nations, that's true in your life. God isn't wasting experiences. God is, as Psalm 3 says, he is a shield around us. What he's allowed in, he allows for a purpose, and his goal invariably is that you would take those things and use them to prompt you to more fully lean into him and trust him because he is the cosmic working Sovereign plan fulfilling God. Secondly, God's grace is everything. Paul argues this way in, in verse 5. He's talking about the remnant. And in, the, in this, he says this, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But then he says this in the very next verse. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He's not talking about here that it's by faith, not by works, that the remnant exists. We do enter, and we are in the remnant by our faith in Christ, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying people are not a part of the remnant because of faith or anything else. They are a part of the remnant by God's grace it is God who has sovereignly brought them to himself. And if you're in, if you're a part of the remnant of faith in this generation, it is by God. Salvation is from start to finish, as he's arguing over and over in these three chapters, by the grace of God. That being so, God's grace is all-powerful and indomitable. If God has to wait until the blind can see or the deaf can hear, if he must wait until a hardened, independent, calloused, self-sufficient person will intellectually be convinced of his need, and there are people you probably might as well hang up the phone to heaven about in your prayers. But if God's grace takes for himself those he chooses, if it is all of grace from start to finish that anybody believes, if God is able to raise the dead, give sight to the blind, cause the deaf to hear, grant repentance to those who take captive, are taken captive by the devil, then we can pray and plead for God to do his work of drawing and changing the hardest of hearts. I was in a conversation with a man recently. He was telling the story of he was raised in a family where none of them had embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior. They never went to church and when he was in his early 20s, he went off to school and got involved with a Christian group and ended up uh, giving his life to Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And 
came back to his family and, and really wanted to see his family uh, come to faith. And he had a father that was an incredibly uh, talented, self-sufficient, independent man, self-reliant, very capable, kind of a guy that is literally, the kind of guy that a biographies are written about, the most interesting life and story. And he said, I, he was telling me, he says, Mark, I, I just could never envision my father seeing his need of Christ. And this just continued through the years as his father more and more just succeeded and became a leader of people and very successful in every realm of his life. And then when his father was 63 years old, he got with his son now in a, around 40 and met with him. And his son had the joy of seeing his father bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And for the last 20 years of his life, he wholeheartedly lived his life for Christ. I told that story in the last two services. And after the last service, a woman from our church came to me who's been a part of our church for years. She says, when you told that story, that was my father. But my father didn't respond until one day in a church service of 200 people, and nobody, we, we were shocked he even came because he never came to church. He'd never shown any interest. We watched our 76-year-old father, still incredibly capable and strong and independent, get dragged by the Spirit of God and walk down the center aisle and bow the knee to Christ at the altar. And she said, none of us could believe grace could reach this man at this point of life. Salvation is the Lord's. And for all of us who have loved ones, we long and hunger to come to Christ. It's God. We lean into Him. We rest in Him. We realize that God has to do it, but God can do it. And God lays them on our heart that we can have a part of that process some of us waiting for years. I have, my dad had his Bible. And in his Bible, he showed it to me a couple years before he died. And he opened his Bible and he said, see this? And there was this, my dad was a very orderly person. And it was almost shocking to see this. He opened his Bible and here was this scotch tape that was all curled up and dirty. And this raggy white um, index card vertical in there. I mean, it just looked awful. And it's got the little hand scroll, and you could hardly read the words. And he said, uh, this is the name of 10 men that I've been praying for for over 40 years. And he, so he showed me the three that had come to Jesus and the others that actually there were a couple more before he died. He just believed there was a wonder-working God that worked in response to people, that he lays them on our hearts, and we pray because he is the one that brings life. God's grace is indomitable. And lastly, the takeaway, God always has and delights in his remnant. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a part of those in this era that have been embraced by God's mercy. Now, Paul here says, if, if you want it, if you're asking the question, does God still care about the Jews? Has, has God, how does he say it? Has God rejected the Jews? No. I'm exhibit A. 
But I want to take that question and I want to put it on its head for a minute. Suppose someone asked you this question. Has God today rejected the New Jerseyites? You say, no. I'm exhibit A. I stand accepted in Jesus' mercy and grace. Can you say that? Are you imbibing the, the glory of that? You are proof positive that God is still mercying people today. Are we living in the glory of that, the beauty of that, the wonder of that? There's a verse that I've really been leaning into lately. It's actually a phrase. My wife and I have been praying through Scripture. Somebody wrote to us some psalms to read, and we've been doing that, and now we're, we've finished the psalm. We're going back, and we're just praying through a psalm each night. And, and we, got, we were praying through Psalm 147. And there's a phrase in there that just reached out and just overwhelmed me. The phrase was simply this. It's talking about God. It says... He delights in those who fear him. Now, the word fear him doesn't mean what you think it means. I've preached messages on this. It, it doesn't mean you're scared of God, we're afraid of God. That's not what it means. It means that God is what awes us. That what we fear, whatever you fear most in your life, is the biggest reality in your life. It controls you. And it's saying God wants to be the one that we hope in. God wants to be the one we trust in. God wants to be the one that we're looking to for help, that we're just filled with, with awe and wonder and adoration, and he just stuns us. And he says, you know, people that do that, that look to me for hope, that look to me for help, that look to find their satisfaction and their joy in me and their weakness, I delight in those people. Now, a couple of verses before that in Psalm 147, he says this. He determines the number of the stars. I don't know if you know it. There are billions of stars, trillions maybe. He determines the, the number of the stars, and then it says this. And he calls them each by name. Every single one. God's meticulously Determine how many stars there'll be. And he has a name for that one, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. That one. He has names for everyone. But you know what he doesn't say? It doesn't say that he delights in the stars. He delights in you. He delights in the person that says, Lord, you're my hope. You're my help. You're my strength. I trust you. He says, I delight in that. I delight in that son. I delight in that daughter. I delight in my children when they find that I want to be hoped in. I want to be trusted. I want to give them help. I want them to let me love them. Some of you are here today, and this is what I want you to take away from Romans 11. You may be here and you feel really beat up and you feel inadequate. You may be here as a dad and you feel that way. And if God has given you a dadship where things are, everything's beautiful and you have 
no discord in your life. That's beautiful, and thank God for that. And I hope you are and trust you are. But my guess is there's a bunch of dads here, and you'd say, I got regrets. I got pain. I feel rejection. I feel accusations. I feel sorrow. And I, I see misses. I see I'm conscious of what I wish I were and I wasn't. And, and then I want you to go to Romans 11. And I want you to remember this. There's a God that valued you enough to make you a part of his remnant, his people. If you're in, it's because he wanted you. And if he wanted you, what he wants of you is for you to be stunned with him, to be awed by him, to let him show you, I delight in you. I'm not minimizing, sure, mistakes, whatever, but I delight in you. So don't look for your hope somewhere else. Don't look for your help somewhere else. Don't look to hear voices that are going to make you feel bad. Fear me. Find your joy in me because I delight in my children when they do that. That's my Father's Day message. Go to the God that delights in people that fear Him, that are stunned with Him, that are overwhelmed with Him, that allow Him to love them, which is what He wants to do. Lord, we only really love when we are loved. When we feel your love, we're told that we then can shed that love abroad to others. So, Lord, thank you for wanting us to know that you love us, for wanting us to know that more than the flowers of the field or the birds of the air or the stars of the heavens. You delight in your children that draw near to you, that put their hope and their trust in you. Lord, you know where everybody is today, and I just ask that you would apply this truth to our lives as you see the need today. In Jesus' name, amen.